Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Welcome back to our study in John's Gospel. Uh, It would be worth uh, just pausing this presentation to actually take the time to read through chapters 14 and 15 if you haven't already done it. We are now into the period that Merrill Tenney in his book, The Gospel of Belief, says uh, is the period of conference. This period runs from chapter 13, verse 36, right through to chapter 17, verse 26. And it's the period that Jesus is preparing his disciples for his imminent departure and absence. Through this period, there is a sevenfold repetition of the phrase, these things I have spoken unto you so that Jesus is really preparing his disciples. It occurs in chapter 14, verse 25, chapter 15, verse 11, chapter 16, verse 1, and verse 5, and verse 6, chapter 16, verse 25, and chapter 16, verse 33. For the disciples, this is a deep, anxiety-laden moment. Jesus had just predicted Peter's denial, and the dismay of that, without doubt, would have impacted on them all. Their faith and loyalty is about to undergo a severe test and they have heart trouble, as it were, caused by fear and anxiety. And so Jesus takes the time to speak to this sense of fear and dread. In verse 1 he starts, Let not your heart be troubled. The word troubled comes from a Greek word, terasso, which means to agitate, to stir up, to throw into confusion or to cause an inward commotion. Don't be afraid, or its equivalent, is probably the most frequent exhortation during this discourse. In verse 1, don't let your heart be troubled. In chapter 14, verse 27, let not your heart be troubled. And then in chapter 16, verse 33, these things I've spoken to you because your heart is troubled so that you may have peace. So Jesus begins and says, you believe in God. Believe also in me. The word believe, of course, can just as easily be translated trust. The verbs in this phrase are interesting, and they could be tra- they could be either in the indicative form or in the imperative form. The indicative form indicates something that already is in place, something that already exists. The imperative form is a command. So that leaves us with four possible ways of reading Jesus' phrase. It could be, you believe in God, indicative. You also believe in me, indicative. Those things are already in place. That, that reading probably isn't likely, otherwise Jesus probably wouldn't have needed to have spoken to their troubled hearts. The second way of reading it could be, you believe in God, imperative, believe also in me, imperative, so that Jesus is actually commanding them to do both that, uh, both those things, to trust God and to trust him. A third possibility is you believe in God, imperative, that's a command, you believe in me, indicative, that's already in place. I suspect this is probably the most unlikely since essentially that's suggesting that they need to believe in God as much as they believe in Jesus. The fourth, and probably most likely, is you already believe in God, indicative. That's already in place. You need to believe in me also. That's a command. I think that's the most likely. Whatever it is that you settle on, what Jesus is doing here is bracketing himself with God and asking or commanding them to believe in him equally as they believe in God. 
He is remarkably making himself the object of their faith and trust. He's making himself the key question regarding their destiny. Now, through this period, we have a series of questions asked by different disciples, questions to which Jesus gives answers. So in chapter 13, verse 36, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Peter's question has to do with place. And Jesus responds in chapter 14, verse 2 to 4. In my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And, when, and where I go, you know, and the way, you know. You know that I've done many funerals over my years in ministry, and I think those verses are probably the most used verses at Christian funerals, and with very good reason. Eternal companionship with Jesus in the Father's house is the expectation of his faithful followers. And Jesus' words make that expectation a certainty. In spite of Peter's imminent denial, in spite of the fear and the failure that is to come, Jesus is nonetheless confident. Everything needed to secure their acceptance and relationship to God will be done at the cross, and for you and I, has been done at the cross. A life of faithfulness and confidence is based on that established security. I don't believe in once saved, always saved, but we can never live and flourish on a once saved, barely saved mentality either. You know, you don't have to get re-saved every second week or every second month. That kind of uh, insecurity is debilitating and will suffer a life of fruitfulness and ministry. Jesus' confidence is, is clear and it comes out in his very concise words. I will go, I will prepare a place for you, I will come back for you. Now, the idea of mansions, he says, oh, I'll prepare some mansions, can be somewhat misleading. For us in the West, a mansion is a palatial residence, but it's very much a modern Western idea. The Greek word is monai. N.T. Wright, in his brilliant book, Surprised by Hope, says that the word means a dwelling place or a temporary lodging. It's not used to indicate a final resting place, but a temporary halt on a journey that is actually taking you somewhere else in the long run. That somewhere else is the resurrection of our physical bodies and the new heavens and the new earth of Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22. We have tended, I think, over the years to imagine that when we die, we go to some disembodied existence, which will be our permanent home, and we call it heaven. It's like the old children's song that runs somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place for those who trust him and obey. But scripture teaches and early Christians believed in a two-step post-mortem existence. The first step was death and immediately whatever it was that was beyond that, described by Paul as being absent from the body, present with the Lord. You can call it heaven or it's sometimes called paradise. It's a blissful life in God's presence, but it's temporary until the resurrection of the body and the new bodily existence in a remade heaven and earth. <clears throat> Jesus' words in this section, by the way, would have resonated with a first century audience. They would immediately recognize it as coming from a first century Jewish betrothal service. 
in that setting, women were bought with a price called the bride price, and that price was paid by the prospective groom to the father of the bride. After a price was agreed on <clears throat> excuse me, and paid, the marriage was effectively sealed and the woman from that moment on was considered holy unto her groom. The covenant was sealed over a cup of wine at a covenant meal at which the groom would say, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house. I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. He would then leave and actually prepare a dwelling place. It was customary for sons to add on to their father's house, and so estates would grow and become large compounds called an insula. While the groom was away preparing the place, the bride would use the season of absence to ready herself for his return. At the, at the right moment, unannounced and often as a surprise, the groom would return and take her to his father's house. The wedding ceremony began with a brief ceremony that centred on the word take. So the idea of to take a wife is actually a Hebrew expression. All this language is very much in keeping with the idea of Jesus being the groom and the church being his bride. In verse 4 he says, where I go, you know, and the way, you know. You know, for the most part, over the previous years, Jesus had been saying to them things along the lines of, you don't know, you think you know, but you actually don't. Here, surprisingly, he says, you do know, even though you think you don't. Because you know me, you know the way. Thomas, who was known for his bluntness, flatly contradicts Jesus and says in verse 5, we don't know where you're going, how can we possibly know the way? Jesus, uh, Peter's question, excuse me, had to do with place. Thomas's question has to do with path. We don't know your destination. If we don't know the destination, how can we meaningfully speak of a pathway to get there? Thomas is looking for a roadmap, complete with specific directions. That question, by the way, paves the way for Jesus' sixth great I am statement. Remember the previous ones, I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world, I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection of the life, and here, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's one of most Jesus' most memorable statements, and it comes in answer to a question from the disciple. So, you know, questions aren't bad. Of course, you can ask questions different way. There is the why requesting information. There is the why of rebellion. The why of in asking for information is often answered with, with sometimes a memorable statement. The why of rebellion can end up as a trip to the woodshed. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's one of those sayings that's multifaceted and, and absolutely hard to exhaust. It's actually unparalleled and unprecedented in religion. Great religious teachers and leaders would have said some things along the lines of, I'll tell you or show you the way, I'll, I'll tell you about the truth, or I'll point to the life. But no one has ever said what Jesus did. I am those things. G. Campbell Morgan commented, His miracles don't demonstrate his deity. They demonstrate that God was working through him. It is his words that demonstrate his deity. Put these words into the lips of another other than Jesus and they are unthinkable, they are impossible. 
So here's the truth. Truth, of course, is one of the scarcest commodities in all of the world. Philosophers have sought it and none have attained it. No mind has ever been large enough and great enough to grasp it. No personality pure enough to express it. He is the life. Christianity is not a system of philosophy nor a code of laws. It is the impartation of divine life, and only Jesus has life to impart. Remember the prologue, in him is life, and the life is the light of men. If you want to know the way, the truth, and the life, then you must know him. If you know him, you don't need to know the way. You don't need to be told the truth, and you don't need to be given the life. He is all of those things. I once heard of a story. A, a, a woman was visiting Jerusalem for the very first time, and she went looking for a post office. Unable to find one, she asked an Arab shopkeeper the directions to one, and he tried to explain it, but realized it was complicated, and she clearly wasn't understanding his directions. So he turned, closed up his shop doors, took the woman by the arm and said, I am the way. Note that Jesus exclusively uses the way. He doesn't say a way. He is not an exponent of some new system, but he declares himself to be the final key of all mysteries. So Jesus, uh, Peter's question has to do with place. Thomas' question is about path. In verse 8, we have Philip's question, and it's about a person. He says, show us the Father. And these are the three great questions that people ask about the afterlife. Where is it? How do we get there? And who are we going to meet when we get there? And Philip's really wondering about the character of the Father that Jesus has been speaking of. What's he like? Jesus, we're happy to be here with you, but him. What's he like? It didn't dawn on Philip that he'd actually been looking at him and listening to him and living with him for the past three and a bit years. For Jesus is the Father's exact expression. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 it says, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And the message translation says, This son perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's nature. So Jesus speaks both words and exhibits works that express the Father. The words are spoken of in verse 10 where he says, Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you aren't mere words. I don't just make them up on my own. The Father who resides in me crafts each word into a divine act. So we have the words of the Father and in verse 11, the works. Believe in me. I am in my Father and my Father is in me. If you can't believe that, believe what you see, these works. Actually, that's how you get to know somebody, anybody, by what they say and by what they do. And through these words and works, we see that Jesus and the Father are indistinguishable. They both say and do the exact same things. Verse 12 contains a staggering promise. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. They will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Jesus' impending departure must have been a very great concern to the disciples for all kinds of reasons, not the least being how would they function without his power operating. It was his power that had healed the sick, cleansed the lepers and raised the dead. 
And I can imagine them saying to Jesus, Jesus, before you came, all we could do was offer people sympathy. With your presence and power, we had something to offer them. That changed everything. If you go, all we have left is sympathy. But no, Jesus promises that his power would remain and be effective among them and through them. And he says, you will go on doing what I have been doing. And clearly they did. The book of Acts is a historical testimony to that fact. And not only they did, but they do. Miracles are an ongoing reality. For some of you who perhaps are unconvinced, can I suggest you take the time to read Craig Keener's two-volume work entitled Miracles. It's a record of, of incredible, miraculous grace that Jesus continues to work. This will be possible, he says, because I go to the Father. That phrase, going to the Father, involves a sequence of events, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And in and through that sequence of events, something has happened to our world that has changed the structure of reality. That event, crucifixion, resurre resurrection, and ascension, has profoundly altered the structures of sin, evil, and death. The stranglehold of sin has been broken. The authority of evil has been broken. The grip of death has been broken. They are still active and present, of course, but their power, their finality, their dominion and dynamic have been challenged and changed. In verse 13 and 14, he says, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me any, for anything in my name, and I will do it. It's a remarkable statement, whatever and anything. There's no limit to the scope of his power, but there are conditions for his glory and in his name. Clearly, we don't have a blank check for our own wants, ambitions, desires, convenience or comfort. This is about God's purposes done in alignment with God's character by his spirit. It's praying the kind of prayer in a given situation that Jesus would pray. Not only were the disciples very concerned that Jesus' power would cease, they were also so deeply worried that his presence would no longer be with them. In verse 16 and 17 and following, Jesus speaks to that fear and promises that there will be another who will come and take his place. And so he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. This is the first of what we call the paraclete passages. In chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, verse 26, and chapter 15, verse 26 and 27, and then chapter 16, verses 7 and 11 through 11, and verses 12 to 15. Of, of all the Gospels, John has the most explicit teaching on the person of the Holy Spirit. And here, for the first time, Jesus begins to speak of a third person. He has spoken often and openly about the Father and his relationship with him, but he now introduces another. The word another in the Greek is the word alos, which uh, means another of exactly the same kind. There is another Greek word, hetros, which means another of a different kind, but alos is the word that's used here. Jesus was the first paraclete. The Holy Spirit comes as another of the same kind. In 
John's epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is described as our advocate, and it's the same Greek word, the paraclete. Whatever Jesus is, the Holy Spirit will be to us. Now, the Greek word paraclete is a very difficult word to translate into our English language. The options in terms of meaning can be helper, counselor, advocate, intercessor, uh, strengthener, standby, or all of those mixed into one. It is one who's called alongside to counsel, to intercede, to stand on behalf of somebody else. It's an intimate friend who acts as a personal advisor. Verse 17 describes him as the spirit of truth. He's also called that in verse 26 and then again in chapter 16 and verse 13. He communicates truth. He bears witness to truth. Jesus had referred to himself as the truth and the spirit is alos of the same kind. Jesus said, and the world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. In this farewell discourse, Jesus speaks a lot about the world. It's a place of darkness and danger. The disciples know him, but the world does not. The disciples love him and keep, their, keep his word. The world does neither. The disciples have his peace, but the world cannot manufacture or give peace. The disciples are under his lordship. The world is under the dominion and power of the spirit of darkness. Actually, somebody once told me that the German translation of this verse says, the world doesn't have an eye for the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes we speak of a young man who has a real eye for a young lady. What we're saying is he's really keen on her. He's, he's looking to see if he can get some kind of response from her. We are to have an eye for the Holy Spirit. We're to be one who looks to him, who hopes to get a response from him, who is very keen on him. The disciples are obviously concerned that they will no longer have his presence. But Jesus responds, I will not leave you as orphans. The Holy Spirit will be here and he will be in you. E. Stanley Jones, the great old missionary to India, said, you can't get closer than in. He will make Emmanuel a living reality. In verse 18, somewhat confusingly, he says, I will come to you. And in verse 20, he says, and the Father will be there too. It's, this is dealing with Trinitarian thought and concepts, and it's a great mystery. It's paradoxical, but it's true. I'll be absent from you, but because the Spirit is there, I'll be present. They are one, and when you have one, you have them all. Verse 23 says, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Now, the word home there is exactly the same word that's used earlier when it's translated as mansions. So we have two mansions. There's a mansion in heaven for men, and there's a mansion on earth for God. And it's as if the Lord is saying, I'm getting a place prepared for you. You get a resting place ready for us. Verse 26 says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit will be the answer to two of the problems that we as disciples face. Ignorance, he will teach you all things. Forgetfulness, he will bring all things to your remembrance. So the disciples we see are very anxious uh, that Jesus' imminent departure, they would, as a result, lose his power 
and his presence, they were also concerned that they would lose his peace. Jesus had been the person of peace that had had been among them. When the storm was raging, it was Jesus' peace that they needed most. And in verse 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This was his answer for their troubled hearts. He had no earthly belongings to leave to his little children, but he could leave them his peace. It's actually interesting that through this discourse, he speaks not only of his peace, but in chapter 15, verse 10, of his love, and in chapter 15, verse 11, of his joy. This is his character, love, joy, peace. And of course, we know that's the fruit of the Spirit. The indel- and the indwelling Spirit makes that fruit available to us, his love, his peace, his joy. Clearly, peace doesn't equate to easy, comfortable circumstances. They are about to go through a tumultuous time with sharp conflicts, but his peace will be there in these stormy seas. Verse 28 is a troubling verse for many Trinitarians because Jesus says, You heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, that's a verse that Muslims, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons appeal to in order to show that Jesus is, in fact, not co-equal with God. Question, does that verse contradict all the other things that John has said, all the material that John has presented to show that Jesus is nothing less than God in the flesh? Leon Morris says, this is not a reference to Christ's essential being, but rather to his incarnate state. The incarnation involved the acceptance of a certain subordination as is insisted on throughout the New Testament. I don't think this is a reference to ontology, to to being, but is simply a reference to the functional subordination of the Son in his incarnate state. So verse 30 says, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming, and he has no hold over me. Or another translation says he has no claim on me or he has nothing over me. Jesus is not from or of this world. Chapter 8, verse 23 says that. Chapter 8, verse 46 says he's never sinned. He stands before a group of people and he says, which of you convicts me of sin? Imagine any public figure having the audacity to, to do that, to stand before a group of people and say, which of you convicts me of sin? In most cases, many hands would immediately go up, but in Jesus' case, immediately silence. There's nobody else that could ask that question and have that kind of response. Verse 31, it says, They arise from the table in the upper room, and they head out of of that uh, context, and they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is where chapter 15 begins. So the last verse of chapter 14 has Jesus and his disciples leaving the upper room, heading out to the Garden of Gethsemane. In this chapter 15, there are three main movements. Chapter 1, verse, uh, chapter, sorry, verse 1 through verse 8 is the metaphor of the vine. Verses 9 through 17 is a commentary on that metaphor. And that those verses constitute a unit that then start, stands in stark contrast contrast to the next unit, which is verses 18 through 25, and then the first four verses of chapter 16, which talks about the world's hatred. 
It's highly likely that this conversation about the vine took place at or was motivated by a stop on their journey to the Garden of Gethsemane. They had to pass the temple complex. It was Passover season and the custom of the time was to leave the great outer gates of the temple open all night so that people who were desiring for, to prepare for the Passover might be able to do so. Now, adorning those gates was a great golden vine with grape clusters that were nearly two metres in height. It was a symbol of Israel's national life and identity, <clears throat> and it's still used today. If you go to an Israeli tourist website, you'll notice a stylized picture of two men carrying on their shoulders a great cluster of grapes on a pole. The symbol was put on coins in the time of the Maccabees. This, uh, the idea then of the grapes is the symbol of Israel's life. It it wasn't the first time that Jesus had spoken to them about vines and vineyards in Matthew chapter 20 and 21, in Mark chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 13, Jesus had told stories that involved vines and vineyards. So the vine was a frequently used designation of Israel. Whenever it is used to refer to Israel, it is nearly always used to describe the failure of the vine to produce the fruit that God was looking for. So let me read to you a couple of reasonably extended passages from the Old Testament that give you this idea of Israel being the vine that has failed to produce the fruit. Psalm 80 verses 8 through 16. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down the wall so that those who pass by pick its grapes, boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the fields feed on it? Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over the vine and root your... And the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. The vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebu rebuke, the people perish. And then possibly the most famous passage is Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, where the prophet says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a watchtower and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judea, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vine he delights in. He looked for justice but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard the cries of distress. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound, reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt and wild vine? 
The whole of chapter 15 in the book of Ezekiel is a basic message that says the vine is either good for fruit or it's good for nothing. Israel as a vine had proved faithless and fruitless. This was in spite of the fact that God as the gardener had done everything possible to make fruit uh, to make the vine fruitful and productive. In Isaiah chapter 5 verse 4 he asked the question, what more could I have done for my vineyard? It's a rhetorical question and the answer is clearly nothing. You, you did everything. The vine produced wild grapes. In the Hebrew, that is literally stink fruit. Israel had been called by God to be the means by which he was intending to rescue the whole of the world and its people. They were blessed in order to be a blessing. Bishop N.T. Wright says, The reason the Creator God called Abraham in the first place was to undo the sin of Adam and its effects. But Israel had failed miserably. What they did was, instead of being a blessing to the world, they nationalized their God and, and, uh, and, and kept him to themselves. They kept others at a distance. So Hosea chapter 10 verse 1 says, Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. If God's promises and purposes to and in Abraham were ever to be fulfilled, then God would have to find himself a faithful Israelite. And he found that faithful Israelite in the person of his only son, Jesus of Nazareth, a descendant of Abraham. So the chapter begins in, in chapter 15 with Jesus saying, I am the true vine. Remember he had said in chapter 1 verse 32 that he was the true light. And in chapter 6 he had talked about himself being true bread. Here he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I am the true vine. That is the seventh and final great I am statement of Jesus. And in this passage, what we see Jesus doing is taking upon himself Israel's identity and mission. I am the true vine. In saying that, Jesus is taking on Israel's identity. Remember, as we've read, the vine was a picture of Israel and their identity. And so Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. He also has said, of course, I am the light of the world, which needs to be read in the light of Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, where Israel's mission was being declared. So Jesus is the new, true, faithful Israel in whom God's purposes rest. We have seen through the Gospel of John how Jesus is the climax and fulfillment of Israel's story. He is the true temple. He's the fulfillment of all the feasts. He embodies their mission. He embraces their identity. 
If people want to be God, part of God's family, part of God's vine, they must be rightly related to Jesus. The vine metaphor essentially teaches us that it's our union with Christ that will be the decisive factor in whether God gets from our lives the things that he desires. I don't know much about vines, but apparently a vine needs a great deal of time and attention as compared with other plants. Many plants and crops can be perhaps damaged one year but be fruitful the next year, back in production after perhaps the damage. It isn't the case with a vine. If it's damaged or battered, fruit can be wiped out for years to come. If vines are stressed by drought, they won't produce fruit. A vine poorly uh, pruned or poorly nourished or lacking water will actually cast off its fruit in order to try and keep itself alive for future seasons. So Jesus says in verse 1 that our father is the vine dresser. He's, he's the gardener. And how we perceive the Father is a key to what we will learn in this parable of the vineyard. You know, if you see somebody coming toward you with a knife, how you feel about them and that situation will completely depend on the nature of the one carrying the knife. A patch gang member, a burglar, or a surgeon. We, each of those would evoke completely different reactions. The one who is carrying the pruning knife in this situation is our loving, gracious, caring father. The pruning knife is a world removed from an assassin's dagger. It is always wielded with incredible care and love. Apparently, a skilled vine dresser always cuts toward himself. The reason is that that demands much more care. A slip is liable to be very damaging toward him, but he takes that risk because apparently if they cut away from themselves, they can be somewhat careless and end up hacking into the vine rather than surgically cutting it. So in spite of the risk to themselves, they cut toward themselves. Vines require careful pruning if they are to bear fruit. Pruning helps the vine grow in the right direction and toward the right ends. Left to itself, a vine will quite literally get in its own light and will waste its energy and end up being unproductive. Parts of the plant that are growing inwards and on themselves get cut out. And the goal of the pruning is always to let the plant be its very best self. The word prune used in verse 2 is an unusual word, kathiairo, and it means to clean. It's also used in verse 3, or it's a word from the same root, where Jesus says, you are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. The words that Jesus had spoken to these disciples had already begun a pruning process. It had already begun to clean them. E. Stanley Jones says that he had cleaned and pruned their idea of God from a Jewish Jehovah to a universal father. He had cleansed and pruned their idea of religion from obedience to law to a manifestation of love. And he had cleaned and pruned their idea of a man being simply a man to a man for whom Christ would die. He comes and cleanses everything. They had already begun to bear fruit, but deeper more pruning would produce even more fruit. So firstly, it says he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. That branch actually might be quite a healthy branch, quite healthy wood. But the problem is that wood is not fruit bearing. 
all of the energy is being directed into wood and it's taking sap for itself but isn't giving anything back. So as a result, it is removed. So not only is living wood removed, but dead wood is removed. The dead wood harbors disease and, and oftentimes destructive uh, insects. So that is cut off and removed. The words cut off, some scholars say actually means to, to lift up. That might point to the fact that vines are actually very crafty plants, always looking for nourishment wherever they can locate it. And if a portion of the vine touches the ground, it can actually develop roots. The same buds that are meant to produce fruit and leaves are just as happy to produce roots instead. So those branches are lifted up and the budding roots are severed in order to prevent them drawing their own nourishment and perhaps even developing into a separate vine. Secondly, every branch that does produce fruit, he prunes. For some of us, that might sound somewhat counterintuitive. If we're not gardeners and something is bearing fruit, we might imagine that we'd leave it untouched. The philosophy is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But that's not the way a good vine dresser functions. His goal is fruit, verse 2, more fruit, verse 2, much fruit, verse 5. Actually, fruit is mentioned nine times in this short passage. Everything the gardener or the vine dresser does is geared to make the branch produce as much fruit as is possible. The reason is that vines are not all-purpose plants. They are good for one thing and one thing only, grapes. And if it doesn't produce grapes, then it's useless for any other purpose. It's so twisted and bent that it can't be used to build anything. It doesn't even burn particularly well. That's the chapter that I mentioned before, Ezekiel 15, where it mentions if it's not good for fruit, it's good for nothing. And verse 3 and 4 says, If wood is ever taken from it to make anything useful, do they make pegs from it to hang things on? And after it is thrown in the fire as fuel, and the fire burns both ends and chars the middle, is it then useful for anything? It's either fruit or nothing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sometimes pruning seems somewhat harsh to the untrained eye, but for the gardener the stakes are high. It is fruit or nothing. The key to fruitfulness as a disciple, I think, is embodied in this word abide or remain, and it's used 11 times between verse 4 and 16. Some people think in using that word, John is drawing from the book of Deuteronomy, where it consistently talks about our need to cleave to the Lord. So Deuteronomy 4.4 4 says, But ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God are alive, every one of you to this day. In chapter 10 and verse 20 of Deuteronomy, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, him shalt thou serve, and to him thou shalt cleave and swear by his name. Chapter 11, verse 22. For if ye shall diligently keep all these commandments which I command you, do them and love the Lord your God to walk in all his ways and to cleave unto him. In chapter 13, in verse 4 of Deuteronomy, ye shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him, keep his commandments, obey his voice. You shall serve him and cleave unto him. And then in chapter 30, verse 20, that thou may love the Lord thy God, that thou may obey his voice and that thou mayest cleave unto him. So Deuteronomy is strong on this idea of our need to cleave to the Lord, and it means to cling or to abide. 
So to abide, to remain, or to cleave is the idea of maintaining constant, active relationship with Christ. It's our continual reliance upon him. It's persistent spiritual imbibing of his life. It's God's life interpenetrating our life so we don't know where one stops and the other begins. With a vine and its branches, there's no fixed line that says the vine ends here and the branch begins there. There's that interpenetration of life, and I think that's what abiding produces. Now, the result of abiding is, of course, fruit. One may ask, well, what kind of fruit? Well, firstly, I think, a prayer life that sees answers to the Father's glory. Verses 7 and 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So firstly, a prayer life that sees answers to the Father's glory. Secondly, obedience. It's an obedient life. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in in his love. So abiding in obedience. And then I think there is the fruit, thirdly, of godly character, the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 10 and 12 speak about love, love toward God and love toward fellow disciples. Verses 12 through 17 emphasize our love for the brethren our love for others. There's no such thing as solitary Christianity. We work out the divine life in community. Remain in me is to remain in the believing community that knows me and loves me. Verse 18 following and down into chapter 16 to verse 4 deals with the believer's relationship with the world. Let me read it to you. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed, obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, <clears throat> they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen and yet have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without a reason. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning." And then chapter 16, all of this, <clears throat> excuse me, all of this I've told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they're offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. Jesus never intended that his followers would live in some kind of monastic isolation. He said, you will be in the world, but he draws a sharp line between them and the world. 
The world has two meanings in John's Gospel. First of all, it is the cosmos, the inhabited earth, and it's greatly loved by God. God so loved the world, John 3.16 says. But secondly, the place and its people in rebellion and resistance toward God constitutes that idea of the world. Between Jesus' disciples and the world, in rebellion against God, is a hostility which is deep and hateful. I know that can sound a little bit like paranoia, imagining that people are out to get you. But the problem with dismissing such thinking as paranoia is that sometimes people actually are out to get you. Jesus had experienced that. All the ostracism, the contempt that had been heaped on him, he was now saying would be heaped on them. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first, he says. We shouldn't be surprised at that turn of event. The world will treat us as it treated him. In his epistle in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, John says, Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. And Jesus says, Remember that I told you this, in verse 20. He had warned them before that the way people responded to the Master would be the way that they would respond to the Master's servants. John chapter 13, verse 16. And he reiterates it. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. The world's hatred is inexplicable. It is, in fact, quite irrational. Verse 24, Jesus speaks about the works that he had done among them, works of sheer mercy and goodness and power, healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, raising the dead, and yet they hate him. And verse 25 says, it's without cause. The world is at enmity with God. It is not moved by truth or goodness or mercy, and it loves darkness rather than light. Romans chapter 8 verse 7 talks about the carnal mind being at enmity with God. A state of war exists between the carnal mind and the carnal world and God and his people, and that hatred comes from ignorance. Verse 21 says, But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Ignorance leads to fear, which often descends into hatred. We fear and often hate that which is different from us, that which we, we don't understand. We see that in nature. Birds will often drive out from the flock an individual bird that differs radically from them in its plume. Men will look suspicious and with jealousy upon one who possesses abilities or features that make them stand out from the crowd. We call it the tall poppy syndrome. We fear and often are moved to hate the stranger. So Jesus is different in nature. If he was of the world, it says the world would have loved him. But he wasn't, and therefore it hates him. When he chooses us out of the world, it places us in a different category than the herd, and therefore it attracts their hatred. Verse 19 says, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Christians don't belong to the world, not because we never belong to the world, but because we have been delivered out of it. We don't imagine that somehow we're intrinsically superior from others. We're very conscious of the fact that we were once in the world and were once, as Ephesians 2.3 says, objects of his wrath. It is God's grace that has chosen and changed us. Jesus accepted the world's hatred as a matter of course. And he helps the disciples to understand that they must do likewise. It is the logical consequence of following him. Previously, he'd said, the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil in John 7, 7. 
Clear sunlight exposes stains and floor which escape notice in lesser light. His words in verse 22 and his works in verse 24 have shed clear, pure light on them and it exposes the fact that they prefer darkness. It makes their ignorance, chosen ignorance, and therefore inexcusable ignorance. Verse 22 says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. You know, the more we as disciples grow and increase in our abiding intimacy, in our love, in our faithfulness, in our fruitfulness, the more we will have the same effect on it, on the world as our master has had. It will stir the world's hatred because the world loves darkness more than light. Verse 26 and 27 promise that while we will experience social hostility and spiritual resistance, we will also experience spiritual help. When the, when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from, from the Father, he will testify of me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So we see here that the Holy Spirit testifies in and through the believing community. The Holy Spirit testifies, we will witness. That's the same word in Greek language. Together, we bear witness of Jesus. So that brings us to chapter 16, which in many ways is uh, the break is an unfortunate point because Jesus is still talking to his disciples about the world's hatred of him and of them. And so he says, these things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. The first phrase, these things I have spoken to you, occurs seven times throughout this discourse, as I mentioned. And it's always with a purpose, so that you won't stumble. The, the Greek means to be scandalized or to be offended. And if I could paraphrase it, I think Jesus is saying, I'm telling you these things beforehand so that when they happen, you won't be shocked and therefore offended as if something strange has happened. So Jesus isn't hiding the consequences of following him in the small print. It is in the opening paragraph and it's in bold print. Follow me and you will be treated by the world as the world has treated me. And actually these final verses in chapter 16 show the source of much of this opposition. And it comes from religion. It comes from religious people. And he says they will expel you. They will execute you all in the name of doing God a service. And historically we know that this has been true. It, in the book of Acts, it was the religious people in combination with the political powers that crucified, uh, that crucified Jesus. And of course, in the book of Acts, exactly the same things happened. Most of the persecution that came against the early church was from the same two sources, religious people and political powers. I think the book of Revelation talks about that as well. The, the, the beast and the false prophet. Many commentators believe the beast is political power, the false prophet is religious power, and together and throughout history, they have persecuted the people of God. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, 
feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.